Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our September 2016 issue. You will hear transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Several research studies have suggested an association between pollen counts and suicide. However, these prior studies did not examine the temporal association between pollen counts and non-fatal self-directed violence. In the present study, supported by the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, the authors focus on this association. The authors use data gathered over a three-year period from emergency room medical records of a hospital in Dallas, Texas to track daily emergency room visits that were prompted by self-directed violence. Daily local counts for tree, grass, and ragweed pollen were also obtained. The authors found statistically significant and positive temporal associations between tree pollen counts and the number of non-fatal self-directed violence events among women. They also found associations between grass pollen counts and the number of self-directed violence events among both men and women. There was no significant relationship between ragweed pollen and these events. Study findings suggest that an increase in non-fatal self-directed violence resulting in an emergency room visit is associated with increases in tree and grass pollen. These findings extend previous research in this area by suggesting that pollen count may not only be related to suicide, but may also be a factor influencing seasonal patterns in self-directed violent events treated in emergency rooms. Poor adherence to medication is a common problem in patients with serious mental illness, as is accurate assessment of adherence. A novel drug-device combination under development promises the ability to directly measure medication ingestion. The digital medicine system includes a wearable sensor that receives a signal from a sensor embedded within a medication tablet upon ingestion and transmits those data to the patient's mobile device. This study, supported with funding from Otsuka, describes results from two sub-studies that assessed the performance and safety of the digital medicine system in healthy volunteers aged 18 to 65 years. Subjects were provided with a wearable sensor and instructed to ingest sensor-embedded placebo tablets every two hours for a total of four ingestions. Measurements included the accuracy of detection of the tablet-embedded sensor by the wearable sensor and the time delay between ingestion detection by the wearable sensor and the cloud-based server. Study A identified areas for improvement in the early versions of the wearable sensor and the mobile application, which were then incorporated into the protocol in Study B. The overall accuracy of ingestion detection by the wearable sensor was 96.6% in Study B. The majority of the ingestion, 77.6%, were detected between 1 and 3 minutes. No safety issues were reported. 
The authors conclude that the digital medicine system can detect and report tablet ingestion with high accuracy and acceptable latency time. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the September Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. A second article this month, supported through funding from Otsuka, outlines three individual studies that served as early steps in the development of the digital medicine system. One study, conducted in 30 healthy volunteers over four weeks, focused on dermal safety and demonstrated acceptable wearability of the wearable sensor. The aim of the second study was to obtain feedback from patients with bipolar 1 disorder or major depressive disorder and their caregivers about updates made to the early prototype of the medical software mobile phone application. Of 58 patients with serious mental illness, 83% reported feeling very confident using the patient component at the end of the study. The objective of the third study was first to measure the accuracy of ingestible sensor detection by the system using tablets containing either aripiprazole or placebo. The second objective was to determine the latency period between tablet ingestion and detection by the wearable sensor. The study showed an overall ingestion detection rate of 96.6% and medication ingestion was detected by the wearable sensor within a few minutes. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the September Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Perinatal depression is a common and costly health concern with serious implications for the mother and child. In this month's CME offering, the authors have quantified the perinatal depression treatment cascade, which highlights the cumulative shortfalls in clinical recognition, initiation of treatment, adequacy of treatment, and treatment response for women with antenatal and postpartum depression. Funding support for this study was received from the National Institutes of Health and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. The authors completed a systematic search and found similarly low rates in each area of the treatment cascade. Nearly half to two-thirds of instances of perinatal depression go undetected. Approximately 85% go untreated. More than 90% are not adequately treated, and 95% to 97% of these patients continue to suffer from symptoms without remission. These findings identify the need for a more thoughtful allocation of resources. Interventions must be considered at each branch of the cascade in order to provide optimal care to these women, children, and families. Taking these steps would also reduce costs for and burden on healthcare systems at large. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the September Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this study, sponsored by the U.S. Department of Defense, researchers evaluated the efficacy of the Strength at Home Men's Program. This program is a trauma-informed group intervention based on a social information processing model to end intimate partner violence in a sample of veterans and service members and their partners. 
To date, no randomized controlled trial has supported the efficacy of an intimate partner violence intervention in this population. Participants included 135 male veterans and service members and 111 female partners. Recruitment was conducted from February 2010 through August 2013 within two Department of Veterans Affairs hospitals. Male participants completed an initial assessment that included diagnostic interviews and measures of physical and psychological intimate partner violence. They were then randomized to an enhanced treatment-as-usual condition or to the Strength at Home Men's Program. Those randomized to the Strength at Home Men's Program were enrolled in this 12-week group immediately after baseline. Those randomized to enhanced treatment-as-usual received clinical referrals and resources for mental health treatment and intimate partner violence services. All male participants were reassessed at three and six months after baseline. At the same intervals, female partners completed phone assessments that focused on intimate partner violence and provided safety information and clinical referrals. Primary analyses using hierarchical linear modeling indicated significant time-by-condition effects such that the Strength at Home Men's Program participants evidence greater reductions in physical and psychological intimate partner violence compared with the other group. Additional analyses showed that the Strength at Home Men's Program reduced controlling behaviors involving isolation and monitoring of the partner. These study results provide support for the efficacy of the Strength at Home Men's Program in reducing and ending intimate partner violence in veterans and service members. Medication non-adherence is one of the most important and potentially modifiable prognostic factors in the outcome of patients with schizophrenia. Present in up to half of patients with schizophrenia, non-adherence can be considered a dynamic and multi-determined phenomenon explaining why the identification of patients with poor adherence remains difficult. The authors of this study sought to confirm the usefulness of the Medication Adherence Rating Scale, or MARS, as a reliable questionnaire to assess adherence in clinical practice on a day-to-day -day basis. The study was motivated by the crucial clinical question of how to differentiate good adherence from poor adherence beyond simply asking the question. Funding support was received from INSERM and other French institutions. Using cluster analysis, two groups were identified. The patients in cluster 1, who had a low mean total MARS score, less than 5, more frequently perceived negative side effects and had negative thoughts about the medication. Conversely, patients in cluster 2, who had a high mean total MARS score, greater than 7, included individuals who perceived having fewer side effects and had a better understanding of the importance of medication. Younger age, high depressive symptomatology, and low insight were significantly associated with poor medication adherence. The authors conclude that the MARS is a reliable and useful tool to assess therapeutic adherence. 
The information provided by cluster analysis underscores the key issues for clinicians to better understand the complexity of adherence behaviors in their patients. Little is known about how sociocultural factors determine the state and severity of mental illness at hospital presentation. To learn more about this, the authors of this article examined ethnic differences in illness severity at hospital admission among patients of Chinese and South Asian ethnicity and the general population living in Ontario, Canada. A large, government-funded, population-based cross-sectional study of over 130,000 psychiatric inpatients was conducted. The authors examined the association between ethnicity and four measures of disease severity, including involuntary admission, aggressive behaviors, and the number and frequency of psychotic symptoms. After adjusting for sociodemographic characteristics, immigration status, and discharge diagnosis, the authors found that patients of Chinese ethnicity had greater odds of involuntary admissions, exhibited severe aggressive behaviors, and experienced at least three psychotic symptoms compared to the general population. The association between Chinese ethnicity and illness severity was consistent across sex, diagnostic and immigrant categories, and for first-episode hospitalization. South Asian ethnicity was also an independent predictor of most illness severity measures. The authors conclude that Chinese and South Asian ethnicities are independent predictors of illness severity at hospital presentation. Understanding the role of patient, family, and health system factors in determining the threshold for hospitalization is an important future step in informing culturally competent care for these large and growing populations worldwide. The co-occurrence of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, chronic pain and substance use disorders, particularly opioid use disorder, is unfortunately a common clinical problem among veterans as well as non-veteran populations. At this time, there are no evidence-based treatment options for patients with all three conditions. Many patients who are maintained on chronic opioid therapy suffer adverse clinical outcomes. Moreover, because these patients are often disabled or dysfunctional socially, they are extremely challenging to manage clinically and can be a burden on their families and healthcare systems. In a study funded by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs that utilized a retrospective cohort, researchers found that during 24 months of follow-up, Veterans with PTSD, chronic pain, and opioid use disorder who were treated with buprenorphine showed modest incidental improvement in PTSD symptoms. However, similar patients who continued to receive opioid therapy for chronic pain experienced a slight worsening of PTSD symptoms. Although their finding is incidental, this investigation was motivated by the prior finding of PTSD symptom prevention or attenuation in mice that after acute trauma received a nociceptin opioid receptor agonist that was similar to buprenorphine. Based on these preliminary findings of an incidental improvement in PTSD symptoms in patients with the combination of PTSD, opioid use disorder, and chronic pain, 
the authors conclude that a dedicated controlled prospective trial may be warranted to determine buprenorphine's efficacy for this challenging clinical triad. Methylphenidate is a prescription medication used for attention deficit disorders. It is increasingly prescribed in adults, while data on its use in human pregnancy are limited. The primary objective of this prospective observational comparative multicenter cohort study was to evaluate the risk of major congenital anomalies after early pregnancy exposure to methylphenidate for medical reasons. The study was performed in four centers in Israel, Germany, the United Kingdom, and Canada. These centers provided counseling services with regard to environmental exposure, including exposure to drugs, prescribed or non-prescribed, during pregnancy. The rate of major congenital anomalies was similar among the offspring of 382 women who took methylphenidate during pregnancy and a comparison group. There was a higher rate of miscarriages observed in the methylphenidate group. However, the miscarriage risk might have been at least partially explained by the underlying disorder. These results suggest that the use of methylphenidate during early pregnancy is not associated with an increased risk of major anomalies. Larger studies and those looking at the possible long-term effects of methylphenidate used during pregnancy are needed. Repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS, is a non-invasive brain stimulation technique. And while it is a promising modality for major depression, the neurobiological mechanisms underlying the antidepressant effect of RTMS remain unclear. The present randomized sham-controlled study investigated the therapeutic effects and underlying neurobiological changes of two weeks of RTMS treatment using functional connectivity MRI in patients with major depressive disorder. Funding support was received from Yonsei University College of Medicine. RTMS was given for two weeks at 110% of the motor threshold for 10 minutes over the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, or DLPFC. Resting state functional connectivity MRI was conducted, and clinical symptoms were evaluated before and after RTMS. Participants in the active RTMS group showed significant improvement in depressive symptoms compared to those in the sham group. After two weeks of RTMS, the active group showed a greater reduction of connectivity strength between the DLPFC and left caudate compared to the sham group. Reduced levels of this connectivity predicted improvement in depressive symptoms. Additionally, Residual depression symptoms were correlated with the connectivity strength after two weeks of RTMS. These findings suggest that the antidepressant therapeutic effect of high-frequency RTMS over the left DLPFC is related to the modulation of functional connectivity in the frontostriatal network. Antipsychotics are generally recommended as first-line treatment for an acute manic episode of bipolar disorder. Unfortunately, success rates are not very high. 
The ability to assess at an early stage which patients will ultimately fail to respond to antipsychotic treatment is therefore important for reconsidering treatment strategies. Most guidelines recommend a time frame of two weeks before treatment is reconsidered. Yet, most studies show that non-response after four to seven days results in a very high probability of treatment failure at study endpoint. To address this issue, researchers from the Netherlands investigated whether early non-response to antipsychotic treatment is predictive of a later lack of response or remission. And if so, they sought to establish the best cutoff time for early non-response or non-remission. The researchers found that early non-response to antipsychotic treatment at week one and week two is indeed a clinically relevant predictor of treatment outcome, but the optimal cutoff to reconsider treatment strategy could not be determined. The authors therefore recommend that clinicians reconsider treatment options within the first two weeks of treatment using a two-stage strategy. They should take into account the level of non-response in weeks one and two and the need to achieve a rapid improvement in symptoms given the nature of manic behavior and the presence or absence of a supporting network. Patients with schizophrenia have increased rates of many cardiometabolic risk factors. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology offering, which is third in a special series, Dr. Andrade looks at pharmacologic interventions, with particular discussion of metformin, as well as recent evidence on topiramate and aripiprazole. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the September Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight two educational activities. Many patients will not respond adequately to treatment with antidepressant medication. Early identification of treatment-resistant or difficult-to-treat depression may help you find the right balance of treatment strategies to help patients achieve remission. In our first CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Otsuka, you will meet Alice, a 32-year-old attorney who is on medical leave from work following a recent depressive episode. She is tolerating her current dose of fluoxetine, but has noted her symptoms worsening after breaking up with her boyfriend. She comes to you seeking a second opinion regarding her diagnosis and treatment. How will you proceed to help Alice? Have you asked your patients with neurologic conditions if they experience inappropriate outbursts of crying or laughing? Pseudobulbar affect has been unrecognized and untreated for too long. Explore our second CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Otsuka, and learn about this embarrassing, socially limiting condition so that you can better help your patients identify and manage this condition. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the September issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.